Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 38 through 50 this morning as we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. It's on page 1075 if you're going to use one of our Bibles. While you're turning there, let me take a moment. Uh, are the stewards here with us today? Stewards, are you here? Does anybody see them? Okay. Uh, the stewards are, are some missionaries that we uh, support in Japan, so welcome. Thank you for being here. Don't 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 clap just yet. Are the rights here? Lee and Sarah. Okay, then also Lee and Sarah. Lee is the new RUF campus minister at UCF. Can we just give a warm welcome to Hear now God's holy and true word from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. The word of the Lord. Can you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks and praise for the mercy that you have shown to us in Christ. And we are looking at a very challenging passage this morning, and so we pray that you would accompany us on this journey. We pray that you would give us courage to look at what is really being said here and to respond appropriately. Father, we pray that you would use this time now to transform us, to renew us, to make us more like your son Jesus so that we are better able to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is a difficult passage, and um, one of the things that is most important as we look at what Jesus says here today is to understand that it's part of uh, a few things that Jesus says. So, if you remember, last week we talked about serving and how Jesus calls us to be last of all and then the servant of all. And then this week we're going to see him talking about accepting other 
believers as our brothers and sisters in Christ and partners in mission. And then he's also going to talk about rejecting sin. And it all culminates to there being peace. Uh, at the very end, if you look, he says, have salt yourselves and be at peace with one another. So when we look at this, this set of teaching, it's, it's important that we see that what he says about sin, which we'll get to, is in context, it's part of a few things that Jesus is teaching his disciples and therefore teaching us. And so if we put it all together, we want to include what we talked about last week. If you weren't here, you can download that sermon from our website. But when you wrap it all together, here's uh, this section of the Gospel of Mark is really aiming at this. That serving one another and accepting one another and rejecting sin leads to peace in the church. Okay? Which is something we long for. Something that we want. Peace among one another. Okay, now, so we're going to do this by looking at three things that we see in just the particular part of this set of teaching that we're uh, zooming in on today. And so if you're making an outline, we're going to talk about three things. Accepting one another, rejecting sin, and living sacrifices. Accepting one another, rejecting sin, and living sacrifices. Okay. You ready? Let's do this. Let's talk about accepting one another. Look at verses 38 through 42. Uh, first thing we want to notice here is Jesus is now talking about accepting one another, and we want to accept Christians from other traditions and denominations as our brothers and sisters in Christ and partners in mission. Okay? This is a big thing here. That's very important. See, a lot of us struggle, all of us in some ways, some of us maybe more than others, but we struggle sometimes to really believe that people who are in other churches or other denominations, maybe particular churches or denominations, sometimes we really struggle to believe they're really Christians. You know that feeling that you get sometimes? Well, the reality is that the uh, disciples felt it too. And Jesus wants us to push back on that. So let's take a look. Verse 38. Uh, it says that John came and he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So right there, you know, they are seeing someone do ministry, and they're doing this ministry in Jesus' name. And because the disciples can recognize that this guy's not with them, he's not part of their little tribe, their little group, they automatically assume this is a big problem, and something has to be done. So they go and tell Jesus. You can imagine Jesus saying, what? Let's get him. Right? But he doesn't. He doesn't. Take a look at what he says. He says, do not stop them, for the one... Uh, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon able to, afterwards to speak evil of me. And so right there, he, kind of, he opens the door wider than the disciples had it as far as who is uh, a believer. Okay, and see, the assumption is, most of the commentators that I was reading on this, they assume this guy, this exorcist, is probably a believer. Why is he not following with Jesus' disciples? I don't know. But the assumption is that probably he did believe. Otherwise, how is he doing ministry? How is he accessing power through Christ's name. And so therefore, uh, maybe this is a foreshadowing of denominations. Because our king, our king knew that we'd be uh, dividing over things that are not essential, that we would have different denominations, all sorts of different denominations. And maybe this is the foreshadowing of that. But either way, uh, Jesus seems to open the door and, and call his disciples to be more inclusive. And then he seems to open the door even wider. Look at verse 40. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. That's 
like, wow, Jesus, how, how wide are we opening this door? But that is uh, what he does next. And uh, he's, it's, it's almost as if he's saying that if someone is spreading the gospel in word or deed, uh, let's go ahead and assume that they are followers of Christ. If they are believers, let's cheer them on. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, hold on. He does bring some clarification. Look at verse 41. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so there is some clarification happening here. He's saying that if someone is doing ministry in his name and giving somebody a cup of cold water or a cup of water was a sign of hospitality and kindness. So in this point now, he's, he's clarifying. He's saying if somebody is doing ministry in his name and they're showing kindness to you because you belong to Christ, then we can assume that they do know him, that they are a believer, that we can, that there are partners in mission, that they are Christians just like us. He's pushing back on that tribalism that we can struggle with. Sometimes we kind of think we're the only ones who have this gospel thing figured out. The reality is there's so many of us across the world, across the denominations. Have you ever been in a situation where you're talking to somebody and, and they start sort of trying to narrow it down to see where they can get to, like how long can we be friends here? You know, how much Christian agreement do we have? Maybe you talk to somebody and, and they've asked you if you're a, you know, are you Protestant? Yes, I'm Protestant. Oh, are you mainline Protestant or evangelical Protestant? Well, are you evangelical Protestant? Oh, are you uh, evangelical Arminian or are, are, are evangelical Reformed? Well, I'm evangelical Reformed. Oh, are you Reformed Baptist or are you Reformed Presbyterian? I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. Oh, do you subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith? Yes, I do. Oh, do you subscribe to the 1903 version or the 1936 version, which went back to the 1916 or the 1647 version? Oh, well, I actually subscribe to the 1936 version, which went back to the 1647 version. Oh! We're working on that. But at that point, you know, what if the person says, like, oh, okay, well, I guess you're not a Christian. <laughs> yeah? But how many times have you experienced that? Or how many times have we been guilty of just automatically assuming somebody's not a believer because in some of the intricate details and the minor doctrines, we don't agree? And so Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Let's push back that door. Let's, let's trust that people who are doing ministry in my name, particularly if they're welcoming you and showing you hospitality because you belong to me, they belong to you. Now, before we get too worried that this door is too wide open, he closes it to the uh, extent that uh, regarding sin. Look at the next verse here. Look at 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, or whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be Better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So there's a pretty big clarification there. Now, it's as if he's saying to us, if somebody's doing ministry in my name and they're showing you kindness and hospitality, then let's assume they're your brother and sister in Christ and they're on their partners in mission. But if somebody is claiming to be a Christian, even trying to do ministry in his name, and they approve of or encourage sin, now we know. Now we know that they are not a true brother or sister in Christ, and they're not really on mission with us. Because it is very clear from the scriptures that to be for Christ is to be against sin. And so Jesus wants this door 
as wide as for us as it is for him. But he wants us to recognize that issue of sin is a very interesting and powerful defining characteristic for knowing who truly is a believer, who truly is following Jesus. And so if someone is not encouraging and approving of sin and they're, they're proclaiming Christ and demonstrating Christ, then we can uh, love them, serve them, accept them as brothers and sisters in the Lord and see them as our partners in mission. That's why we pray for all these different churches uh, around the area. Number one is because we want to lift up our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the city, but we also want to be reminded that we're not the only one. Uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, you know those names? They were preachers from a couple hundred years ago, and they had very different theology. Uh, John Wesley was very much Arminian, and George Whitfield was very much Calvinist, like most of us. And uh, what's, there's an interesting story where somebody approached George Whitfield one time and asked him, George, do you think that you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And George Whitfield said, no, sir, I don't. Because that man will be so close to the of Christ, I don't know that I'll ever get the opportunity to shake him. So how do you apply this? We apply this by seeing that part of what comes in peace in the church is by you and I accepting our brothers and sisters in Christ across denominational lines, across traditions. We draw that line at sin, but other than that, we want to really be inclusive. We want to really see that we're in this together. And I promise you, we need that. We need that because no city can be reached by one denomination, uh, definitely not by one church, and no city... Uh, can be reached by even just a few people. It, it, we need each other. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, both side note, as the culture begins to be more hostile towards Christians, we're really going to find that we'll need each other more and more. So I love that Jesus pushes us on that and calls us to be as inclusive as he is. So next, the next thing he does is he turns... The focus more to our sin. Okay, you know he's. In, if we look at this whole section, he's been he he addressed the fact that the guys were arguing about who's the greatest, and he says no no no, be a servant. And then they're arguing about who should really be doing ministry, and he's saying no no, no we're in this together. And now he points uh, to our sin. So let's talk about rejecting temptation and sin. Forty three to forty eight. And here's uh, what we see. The second thing we want to really take note of this morning is that whatever it costs us to fight temptation and reject sin, it's worth it. Okay? Whatever it takes for you and I to fight temptation and reject sin, it is worth it. Let's take a look at these verses. 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell unquenchable fire. And he says something similar about your foot causing you to sin, your eye causing you to sin. And it was very clear about the reality of hell being a place of eternal conscious torment, where God's justice is administered to those who die in their sin without faith in Christ. Now, as we look at this, there's some, some important things for us to recognize, Okay. Uh, number one is that we are saved by grace through faith and not through our obedience. And this is Jesus is not saying anything different here. 
Okay, we are saved by grace through faith. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Jesus himself says that whoever believes in him receives eternal life. We're saved by grace through faith. Okay? So we can't read into this that we are saved by fighting against our sin or by our obedience. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. But the reality is, and this is one of the hard uh, aspects of being a follower of Jesus, is that continued unrepentant sin will result in going to hell. Because continued unrepentant sin reveals unbelief. And we cannot be saved except through faith, because we can't be saved through our works. None of us are good enough. We just can't do it. And so, it's so important that we see that. This is why there's lists. Paul has a list in 1 Corinthians 6. He has a list in Galatians 5 of sinful behaviors where he says people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the emphasis is not that if they do them, then you go to hell. The emphasis is if you continue in them. If you continue in these sins, then the end result is eternity in hell because it's you don't have faith. If you have faith, by corollary, you turn away. See, when we become Christians, when our heart is regenerated, when we are born again, we are made new. We're given a new heart. We're given a new spirit. We're given a new set of desires. And we will always wrestle with sin, and sin will always be attractive, and we'll still fall into it from time to time. But that question of, do you have a fundamental different view of sin now? It's something that we have to ask ourselves regularly. And the way that you know you are a true believer is you have a desire to fight against sin. And you see God's law as something that is, is, is showing us how we live as a forgiven and free child of God. Because through faith we are united to Christ. And so in that union, we grow to love what he loves and hate what he hates and want to do what he does. So that's a big thing we've got to understand here. This is not going against what the Bible teaches about grace. That we're saved by grace through faith. That's one thing important thing. Okay? Another important thing. That Jesus is using hyperbole. Meaning he doesn't want anyone to literally cut off their hand, foot, or gouge out their eye. Although Christians uh, through history have, some have done that. Only to find that they still are falling into sin. He's using hyperbole, and we know that because in the Old Testament, uh, self-utilization is actually outlawed, and we know that Jesus uses hyperbole. He speaks in such ways to make a point, just like he did with the millstone. That's a graphic image of somebody being drowned by a millstone. And so he's using hyperbole. He doesn't want us to cut anything off of our bodies. But he does want us to uh, be drastic in turning away from our sin. Okay? And so uh, it's, it, we're seeing that the worst result of sin is hell. And so continued unrepentant sin will uh, land a person in hell. Even if they say they believe, we know that they don't if they continue on in sin. But the reality is there's, there's also major miserable consequences for you and I as a believer. Those of us who do believe we are fighting against our sin. It's a battle that we're engaged in. There's several things. For example, uh, Wayne Grudem is a systematic theologian. He talks about three things to really remember when we're talking about sin of the believers. Uh, number one, we've kind of touched on this, but it, our sin does not affect our justification or our adoption. 
meaning when we sin, if we are a true believer, okay, our sin does not affect our legal standing with God. We're still forgiven. We're still declared righteous. And he also doesn't disown us. We're still his children. If we truly believe. Okay? But here's uh, uh, some more things that for us to be considering. The other thing that we need to realize is when we sin, it always disrupts our fellowship with God. In fact, this is a great way for, always, for us to know if we're really in sin. If we're struggling, if it's causing conflict in our hearts, we know it's something that we want to turn away from. Uh, we, we know that Paul talks about our sin grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4. Uh, we know that um, we, are, we receive God's fatherly discipline. We see that in Hebrews 12 and other places as well. When, when God, our Father, sees His children doing things that don't glorify Him and damage the children and damage other people... He brings his fatherly discipline to correct them like any good father. Uh, also, our fruitfulness is hindered. If you love Jesus, you love the gospel, and you want the gospel to go around the world, and what we need to realize is when we're engaging in sin, our fruitfulness is hindered. We're not able to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel with uh, any power. Jesus says in John 15 that uh, we need to abide in him, and when we don't, we won't bear any fruit. Uh, also, uh, when we sin, we have inner conflict. We really struggle. We really wrestle. And it really tears us up inside. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 2, talking about how the, our sin wages war against our souls. So there's, this is why Jesus is so aggressive, calling us and saying, whatever it costs, you do that thing in order to stop sinning, in order to avoid temptation. A, th a third thing... Uh, that Gruden talks about is that when we repent, we grow. And this is such a beautiful reality of our gracious and merciful God. When we do repent and turn away from our sin, we grow. And we grow more like Christ, and we also grow in our joy in the Lord. And so it's such an incentive to see that Jesus is saying it's not worth it to be involved in these things. Because rather, you can turn away, and you can grow, and you can experience more Joy and that turning away is assurance. It gives you assurance that you really do believe. So those are some things to be thinking about. And now what's so interesting about this is Jesus does get very practical. He gets very practical if you think about the body parts that he refers to, and then if you were to equate them in sort of a metaphorical way. Like for example, uh, if somebody, if, if one of us is involved in a sin that it's a, maybe an activity. Okay, some sort of activity that, that's like your hand. When he says if your hand causes you to sin, it's another way of saying if you're involved in some sort of activity, and whenever you do that certain activity, you're feeling very strong temptation, or you're finding yourself actually falling into sin, Jesus, who loves you and knows you, is saying, it's not worth it. Turn away. Another thing was it would be the foot. The foot could be a metaphor. A lot of people think that's a metaphor for places that we might be going. And so our King, who has died for us, united Himself to us to set us free from sin's power, He's saying, look, if you are in the habit right now, if, you, if you've generated this habit recently where you're going somewhere repeatedly, and every time you're there, you're feeling such temptation or maybe even falling into sin, He's saying, whatever it costs, cut it out. Cut it out of your life. And the I... Uh, is thought of as a metaphor for things that we see. Okay? In other words, if 
if you are seeing things on a regular basis, maybe in a magazine, maybe on a website, and when you see such things, you're feeling overwhelmed with temptation and or finding yourself falling into sin, Jesus is saying, cut it out. Turn away. It is not worth it. Whatever joy you may think you will get from that sin, it will not deliver. That's one of the most insidious things about sin, and the, one of the main reasons God calls us away from it is because it continues to promise and never deliver. So how do you apply this? If you're not a believer today, you know, the, the application would be that you need to uh, realize that there is an afterlife. There is a, a, a place where people go. And in our country and in Christianity, we don't talk about it that much anymore. And I'm not trying to be all hellfire and brimstone. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. It says that those who die without faith will be judged according to their works, and your works have failed. And so we would plead with you to turn your life over to Christ, to repent, and to begin to believe the gospel. Okay? If you are a believer, then what this is calling you and I today is, is, is we need to hear the voice of Christ calling us, saying it's not worth it, whatever you're involved in, cut it out of your life. And the reality is that he knows it's not easy. He knows it's not easy, and that it's very often costly and difficult and requires sacrifice for us to actually turn away. But that's what he's saying. It's better that we sacrifice much to turn away from our sin than to continue on in it. So, are you doing something that is causing tons of temptation and even sin? Are you going somewhere regularly that's causing a lot of temptation and sin? Are you seeing something? And our call, the call, what Jesus is calling you to today is to turn away. And to trust that the power of the Holy Spirit is within you. That when Jesus died on the cross, he set us free not only from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. And we can turn away from these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you, I plead with you, come talk to one of the pastors. Y'all need to know, especially if you're new with us, that if you are in sin and want out, which I hope that you do, if you come to one of the pastors, we will extend our arms to hug you and sit down with you to make a plan. I think, you know, sometimes we think if we go to a pastor and say, I'm in sin, we're going to get slapped. Or That's how you should be saying, you know. No, that's not how we operate. Because guess what? We are big, fat sinners too. So, maybe today would be the day to make a decision to speak to a pastor or one of our elders. Maybe your life leader. And be loved into a plan where you get to aggressively cut that sin out of your life and experience the joy of repentance and joy in new obedience. So, uh, lastly here, I want to talk about living sacrifices. But this, remembering that this section, Jesus is, he's really calling us to be serving one another, to be accepting of one another, and to reject temptation and sin. And that results in peace in the church. So that's such an incredible beautiful picture of why we would want to strive for all these things. But the, the key here, where this all connects, is in this concept of being a living sacrifice. And so we've got to look at verses 49 through 50. Okay, 49 through 50, and here's where, we, where we're headed here. Discipleship is choosing to become a sacrifice that lives because of the one who chose to become a sacrifice and die. 
Let me explain what I mean. Look at 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So there's that peace with one another. And when he says have salt in yourself, salt is a, is a metaphor for preserving Preservation. They used to preserve meat with salt back then. And so he's saying, have something that will preserve you, have something that preserves the church, preserves the peace of the church, and that is these things. Serving one another, accepting one another, rejecting sin. But let's focus on 49. It's this very interesting verse. He says things about being salt in the other Gospels as well, but this salt and fire reference in 49 is unique to Mark. It's got a very special uh, meaning for us. Salt and fire. Salted with fire. Verse 49. Most commonly, here's how this is interpreted, and I, I think this is wrong, that the connection between salt and fire takes us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. That in the Old Testament, when you offered a sacrifice for sin, it would be an animal that would be killed to symbolize uh, the sacrifice that needs to be made in order for God to be uh, at one with his people, in order for there to be atonement. That's what atonement means, at one Okay? And so uh, it's this picture, but what's so interesting is if you were to flip to Leviticus 2.13, it will tell you that they were supposed to put salt on the sacrifices. So there'd be fire, and there'd be salt. And so Jesus is saying... Everyone will be salted with fire. And what most people think is that he's talking about discipleship being a call to being a living sacrifice, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans 12.1. If you were to flip there, this is what you would read. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so you've got fire, which is a metaphor for struggle or suffering. And we know that that's the case. If we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, if we say, I want to give everything over to you, God, there's going to be struggling. There's going to be suffering. Turning away from sin is hard. It's costly. But it's worth it. And then here's what's so powerful about this. Not only do you have fire, which is involved in sacrifices and in, in, um, in referring to struggling or suffering as well, but we also have the salt. And salt, remember, what does that mean? What's that a metaphor for? Being preserved. So what that's saying is, as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, there will be struggle. It will be hard to turn away from our sin, but we will be preserved through it. Because Christ is with us, and we are united to Him, and He died for these sins. So as we struggle and suffer against our sin, we will be preserved. It won't kill us. And in fact, that same fire then becomes something that purifies us. It's a process by which God makes us into what he's already declared us to be in Christ, which is righteous and pure. We are righteous and pure by faith. And as we repent and strive against our sin, God is making us more like Christ, more righteous, more pure. Does God want to make us more pure so that he can love us? No, that's what's so amazing about grace and the gospel is that God wants to make us pure because he already does love us. Because he has already uh, given us Christ to atone for our sin. And here's what's so interesting about this salt and fire reference. 
when, you th when we think about Jesus, which is the reason that we are at one with God, because of his at one his atonement for our sin, when he was dying on the cross, he was paying the debt of our sin, transferring his righteousness to us, making us at one with God. When that was happening, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. But guess what is very distinctly missing from all the crucifixion accounts about Jesus' death on the cross? Salt. You see? There was nothing to preserve Jesus. You and I will struggle and suffer against our sin, but we will be preserved through that process as we're purified. But Jesus, there was no salt. Which means that as the wrath of God came down upon him, it completely destroyed him. And so the sin has been paid for. The atonement has been accomplished. And that liberates us from the penalty of sin. And it also liberates us from the power of sin. And calls us forward to fight against that sin that Jesus died for. Because he was completely destroyed. So that you and I won't be. As we continue to trust God. And he makes us pure in the process. He makes us pure not so that he can love and accept us, but because he already does in Christ. Because he knows us. He's our Father. And he knows that there's joy. And we are becoming more and more pure. Remember the last time there was a really bad oil spill? And all those animals were covered in oil. Remember how we saw all sorts of pictures on the news about people... Um, Washing these animals clean, and Dawn very brilliantly, uh, Dawn dish soap jumped on it and made a commercial about somebody cleaning a duck with Dawn soap. Well done, marketing team. Okay, I want you to think about something. Did those people go to clean those little ducks so that they could love them? No, they went to clean those little ducks because those little ducks were, were were made to be. Clean and pure and swimming in a little pond. And you and I were made to be clean and pure and reflecting the glory of God with every step and every breath and every thought. And sin has destroyed that and Christ then was destroyed for that so that we can be rebuilt, so that we can be remade and made pure. And God lovingly puts his hands on us like those workers with the little ducks. And just like the little ducks were squawking and quacking and wondering what's going on while they're being made pure. We squawk and we quack as we are being made pure, but the end result is that we begin to shine. We begin to be more pure. We begin to be more like what we've already been declared to be in Christ. Righteous. Don't you want that? Father, we thank you so much that you would send your one and only Son to take all of our filth and the stains of our sin upon his back. That he would become sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that you would declare us forgiven and free in Christ through faith. And then you would also, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would make us pure. As if being forgiven and declared righteous wasn't enough. You are so gracious. And so, 
Help us to want that. And help us to strive. Help us to love your law. And in light of this set of teaching of our, from our King and our Savior, let us serve one another, let us accept one another, and let us reject sin together and experience the peace that that brings as we continue to celebrate with those all around the world celebrating that in Christ we have been made at one with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.